Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his new book, Come Manifesto, Islamicate Cosmopolitan Spirit, legendary scholar of Islam, Bruce Lawrence, outlines his politico-conceptual manifesto for the study and place of Islam in the modern world. He does so by expounding lyrically and brilliantly on the key category of his book that also forms its title, Islamicate Cosmopolitan Spirit. Much of the book is devoted to elaborating and nuancing what these three categories mean to Lawrence and their significance to the craft of Islamic studies today. He also delves on some other central themes such as the notion of Persian cosmopolis and its importance to the manifesto he details in this book. Analytically piercing and refreshingly unhinged, this manifesto should and will be widely read and debated. Here is my conversation with Professor Bruce Lawrence. Hello, Dr. Lawrence. Uh, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Uh, it's fantastic to have you again on the New Books Network, on New Books in Islamic Studies, and this time with this really thrilling and interesting uh, new book, Islamic Hit Cosmopolitan Spirit. Uh, really looking forward to uh, our conversation today. And um, I guess I want to begin, Dr. Lawrence, by asking you uh, a broad question, uh, which is, um, I guess anyone who reads this book realizes that in some ways this book is both a distillation and in some ways an encompassment of your intellectual career. But I want to ask you sort of in the near term, how did you come to write this particular book? What sort of spurred you in the direction uh, to write this book? And other sort of connected question I want to tag along with this is, the really fascinating thing in terms of uh, the texture of this book, the kind of book it is that I found really fascinating and also really interesting and productive is that it is at once an rigorous analysis of a set of key concepts uh, in the study of religion and Islam, but it is also, as you mentioned, a manifesto. So I'm wondering as a writer, how did you strike that balance, which I think you have struck really quite beautifully between the analytical and the I guess, the prescriptive or the, manif- the manifesto part of it. As a writer, how did you strike that balance? I just want to ask this two-part question. <clears throat> well, it's a great, great question. And one of the responses I've gotten from several people who've read it is that um, this was my second manifesto. And I said, really, I didn't realize that I'd written a previous one. And they said, yes, anybody who reads Who is Allah, the book which I did, um, for University of North Carolina Press in the series that Carl Ernst and I co-edited on Islamic Civilization Muslim Networks. Anybody who, who, who reads that realizes that I'm not writing simply a descriptive book or even one that's analytical, but also, in a sense, it is, um, if you will, uh, a call to rethinking uh, what one means when one uses the, the very basic term Allah and what different contexts and what different um, audiences hear about it. So actually... Until somebody told me that, to be honest, and I, I wouldn't uh, want to be anything else with you or with your audience, um, I think this is actually my second manifesto. And I think the person who who read Who is Allah 
as a manifesto is correct. And I think what both of them have in common is that they take up key terms. Obviously, Allah is one that's very well known and people have heard it everywhere, uh, whether they're Muslim or not. But then the term Islamicate, which is the, the first word in my, my newest book and the, the, my second manifesto, is a term that's really unknown, except to a very limited audience of people who either specialize in global history or think of Islam and Islamic studies as their purview. So in each case, I'm taking a term which has value and audiences and histories, but trying to turn it and look at it from um, a critical perspective that expands rather than contracts the audience uh, who will listen and hear what I'm saying in, in this new book. So I, I guess Islamicate goes back, if you will, to um, Aligarh. I mean, um, as you may recall from our conversation last January about my own reader, my own life, is that um, until I went to India and specifically to Aligarh and Aligarh Muslim University in the mid-70s, I thought of myself as a textualist who was going to work in two languages, Arabic and Sanskrit, and occasionally look at Persian. But after going to Aligarh, I realized that there is something much bigger about Persian than even contemporary Iran, that there is something that is Persian in India and resolute through various experiences and persons and events and institutions that are linked to South Asia. So I, I expanded my world, my world and my worldview in the mid-70s in Oligarch. But then when I came back to uh, the United States, a friend of mine, Richard Martin, who's unfortunately now deceased, but Richard Martin, a longtime colleague who was then at Arizona State, had a conference on Islamic studies in 1980. And everybody was talking about Orientalism. And even then I felt Orientalism is too limited a concept, even though it's debated and still debated and will always be debated about what is meant by it and especially by the book by Edward Said in 1978, there's something much more. So when I came to the point 25 years later, when I was thinking about retiring from Duke, uh, some of my colleagues, including our common good friend, uh, Ibrahim Musa, had said, well, let's have a, a conference where we talk about what your ideas are on Islamic studies that are not Orientalism, that are post-Orientalism. So that conference, it was arranged in 2006 and later published as a book, Rethinking Islamic Studies, went from Orientalism to Cosmopolitanism. So I found myself linking Islamic and Islamicate to Cosmopolitan, but I thought Islamicate was too insider a term, too limited in its um, knowledge and audience. So I thought instead of doing Muslim Cosmopolitanism, and I applied to Blackwell, and they were very excited about doing a manifesto, this is in 2010, a manifesto on Muslim cosmopolitanism. But then I I had the experience of teaching for uh, a semester out in, in Qatar, in Doha, with, uh, with my spouse and uh, partner Miriam Cook. And both of us were in Doha, and I rekindled my interest in Islamicate and thought again about how, how could the term Islamicate apply to civilization so we did a conference there on, on cosmopolitanism, and, and the term there was Islamicate cosmopolitanism. And so I rethought it and worked on it when I was also in Indonesia and southern Philippines on a Carnegie grant. Um, and then I had this experience in 2019 of going to Exeter as a visiting professor at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter, 
And they asked me for an introductory lecture, and I thought, well, I'll try Islamic Kazapal. And then the more I thought about it, I said, no, it's not just Islamic Kazapal, it's Islamic Kazapal spirit. So very briefly, that's the genesis, going back to the mid-70s to the late um, second decade of the current century to just three years ago, when I, at this time three years ago, I was at Exeter. Um, I, I evolved from thinking about Islam to thinking about uh, Muslim Kazapal to thinking about Islamic Kazapal and finally thinking about Islamic Kazapal spirit. The answer to the second part of your question is that, so that's, that's the, 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 if you will, the, 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 uh, the, the, the larger um, trajectory or the, the, the time span of how I got interested and how I changed. But what really spurred me to make it analytical rather than narrative, which is the second part of your question, was that there were many people who were challenging the term Islamicate, and of course among them Shahab Ahmed, whom we'll talk about later. But in his book, um, What is Islam, the Importance of Being Islamic, uh, it, it, is, it, is, it was a sense in which he frontally looked at Hodgson's terminology and disagreed with it. And the more I thought about his arguments there, including his quotation of my own uh, work on Hodgson, I found that I needed to make a, a broader appeal where I, I accepted the criticisms because some of his criticism and others' criticism is valid about the narrowness and the, and the um, presumption of what's meant by Islamic hate. But I felt that new terminology and a fresh way of thinking about Islamic hate was valuable. So I, I retooled after 2019 and, and wrote, wrote this monograph as an analytic, as you correctly say, not just a narrative or, or uh, a literary, but an analytic and um, reflective essay manifesto on why this particular term, I, see, I call it ICS, Islamic Kazapan spirit, is important and I hope of value to many people. That's a great segue to my next question. Um, you know, titles, uh, you know, as uh, we know that uh, you're an author who takes titles very seriously and there are many very prominent scholars uh, whose books, if you see the acknowledgements, they oftentimes uh, thank you for the suggestions you made on their titles and they became really important books in our field. But I think if there was any book in which the title is really, really central uh, to the book itself, it's this one because in some ways, uh, this book is a reflection on the three ca- categories that make up the title Islamic it, Cosmopolitan, and then Spirit. So I want to spend some time for the benefit of the listener on each of these terms and how you talk about them and how you explain and elaborate on them throughout the book. And I want to begin with the category that you just mentioned, uh, Islamic it. And uh, um, walk us through, Dr. Lawrence, if you will, the sort of ways in which you try to not only retool, but also launch a defense of sorts of Islamic. And you correctly mentioned, and you mentioned in the book also, that there have been many critiques of this uh, term, uh, most prominently perhaps uh, in the work of uh, the late Shahab Ahmed. So tell us a bit about what you find these critiques to be missing about the effectiveness, the durability, the importance of this category, and uh, what uh, animates your insistence on the productivity of this category, both as an analytical tool and also in terms of the political work that it does in terms of thinking about Islam uh, today. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you pieced together the analytical and the political because what I try to do in the beginning but also in the other parts and finally in the conclusion of this manifesto on Islamic hate, cosmopolitan spirit or ICS is I, 
I acknowledge that the term comes from Hodgson, but that it, Hodgson's coined this term back in the 1960s. Of course, his book wasn't published till posthumously in 1974, The Venture of Islam, uh, Conscience and History in a World Civilization. And obviously, Hodgson coined the term, so I refer to him and I have elaborate discussion of what he meant and how others have thought about what he meant in the use of the term Islamicate. But what I'm constantly trying to do is to realize that those two terms, Muslim and Islamic, which many people take for granted when they think about uh, that part of the world from Senegal to Indonesia, but also now parts of Europe and North America, Western Europe and North America, that include large segments of Muslim population, but also influences from a larger culture and civilization that is linked to Islam, that the great difficulty is that people identify the religion with the civilization, or they merge religion and culture. And what the late Shahab Ahmed did was to say that Hodgson, in using the term Islamicate, is accenting the cultural over the religious, uh, and in fact, making the cultural uh, something that is secular and the religious something that is only related to personal faith. So that he, he really discredits, as many people do, discredit Hodgson's neologism because Hodgson invented this, first of all, as somebody who was a Western scholar, somebody who was born in North America and lived, in, except for, I, I should say, except for one really important year of his life, which most people don't recognize, that Hodgson, after he got his PhD, spent, I think, the most important and significant year of his life in the same place where I spent two years of my life. That's Aligarh Muslim University. Hodgson was there from 1950 to 1951. And I think that year in Aligarh changed the way he thought about the Muslim world and also about the nature of what pertains to Islam in the cultural uh, and social and political, as well as the religious and personal and faith-oriented domain. So yes, Hodgson was American, Protestant, Quaker in his background, but I think he was broadly universal in his outlook and very probing and um, constantly searching for new ways to think about what was it that was distinctive about Islam and Islamic civilization. And he realized that the term Islamic too often gets circled back not only to religion, but to Arab and Arabic. So uh, I just want to mention something which some of your listeners will recognize is that there is a, a center, um, an institute in England called the, uh, the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies, which is where I taught for a, year, for a semester in early 2019. And it's a wonderful place to go and pursue the study of Islam. But the number of people who refer to it, not as the center of Arab and Islamic studies, but the center of Arabic and Islamic studies, they use the qualifier for the language rather than the qualifier for the larger um, group of people and places that are known as Arab. And so this difficulty that is even there in the present day in 2019, as recently as three years ago, when I would say to people, oh, I'm at the Center for Arab and Islamic Studies, they said, oh, so you're doing Arabic studies. I said, no, no, Arab studies. So this constant association of Islamic with Arabic and the intertwining not just in the origin, but in the development of it. So Hodgson, the reason why I take Islamicate seriously and use it in the, as the first word in my manifesto, is Islamicate really implies that there is what Hodgson called um, a Perso-Arabic 
or an Iranosemitic, that there's something that's larger than Arabic, it's not to discount or say that Arabic isn't important, but that Arabic and Arab by itself does not explain what's Islamic. So I think it was this puzzle on how to expand, not to limit or narrow or somehow reduce the importance of Islamic or Muslim or Arab, but to show that there is a larger civilization, what he calls a world civilization, based on conscience and history that, that describes Islam. And so the venture of Islam is really the venture, not just of the whole history, which he outlines in a unique way in his three volumes, the venture of Islam, but also the venture of understanding it, of looking imaginatively and thoughtfully and crucially at all the dimensions of what characterizes this massive civilization that really for him begins even before the arrival of the Prophet Muhammad because it has elements in the, in the pre, um, pre-Islamic world that then become important with the spread of Islam and with the development of what he calls Islamic age civilization. So to answer your question, I take my cue from Hashin, but also accept the critique of Shahab Ahmed, also the critique more recently, which I know you're familiar with uh, from our our common resource, uh, uh, Armando Salvatore, who now teaches at McGill, uh, with whom I've had lots of correspondence but never had the privilege of meeting. But Salvatore, in this wonderful book where you're also a contributor, which also comes out from Wiley Blackwell, and they're not paying me to say this, but I'll say it anyway, that the Wiley Blackwell History of Islam is a remarkable work. As much as I try and reduce everything to talk about Islamic cosmopolitan spirit in a single slim volume, this is an expanded, huge book. I think it's almost 700 pages, uh, which comes out from Wiley Blackwell in 2018, about four years ago. And it's remarkable because it, it applies, it's the only history, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the only major history of Islam that I have read, or which I'm aware, that actually tries to apply Hodgsonian categories to the entire span of Islam, from the pre-modern to the modern, and looking into the future. So even while I applaud uh, Salvatore for this uh, wonderful volume, and especially enjoy uh, ch- the chapter 25 in the seventh act, where you have a wonderful chapter on modernity and, and how you think about modernity with reference to the great Western transportation Islam that Hodgson talks about, I still think that there's a sense in which um, Salvatore, like Armando Salvatore, like Shahab Ahmed, like others, mistakes what Hodgson means by Islamicate by calling it secular. Um, so I know that you're aware of this, but other people may not be aware that, um, like many things, uh, Salvatore co-edits and co-authors, and he co-authored an essay in, um, I believe it was 2019, which he, he described Islamicate secularities. And by, by pinning Islamicate with secular, you, you've already pigeonholed, and I think misshapen what Hodgson intended what I think is the higher role of Islamicate, which is to break beyond binaries. So my, my constant effort throughout this book is to go beyond binaries of thinking of Islam and the West or Arab and Persian as always oppositional and not just simply complementary items. So I think that the word Islamicate for me should be an envelope, not a dead end in thinking about how one goes beyond religion and goes beyond culture and thinks about categories that combine religion and culture that are expansive rather than narrowing and that don't include secular and religious as oppositional, but include cultural and religious as compatible. 
So that's why I use the term Islamicate, referencing Hodgson, but not limiting him and, and acknowledging the critiques of Shahab Ahmed, but also Armando Salvatore in thinking about it. Just as a quick follow-up, so in some ways, one might sort of um, distill your argument in that you're trying to show that one cannot bifurcate these two categories of religion and culture, which can then be mapped onto this bifurcation between the religious and secular, but rather they're so enmeshed in Hodgson's thought and also in terms of how you think about the Islamicate that both sort of cross-pollinate with each other. Would that be sort of um, an accurate way to talk about your defense of the Islamicate? Yes, and I think the word... That's, that's missing, which I haven't hesitated to use until now, but I have to introduce it, is if one wants to look, first of all, if one accepts civilization as a category of analysis, which I do. So you'll note when I begin my, my book, I talk about Islamicate, but before I talk about cosmopolitan, I talk about civilization, because I don't believe one can use or invoke the term uh, cosmopolitan without thinking of civilization. So I talk about Islamicate civilization, which of course is Hodgson's term, <laughs> And both you and Salvatore and some others have correctly said that the, the shorthand for Islamicate civilization might be Islamicate ecumene, which is another term Hodgson uses, the Afro-Eurasian, or Islamicate ecumene, and that another word would be Islamdom. And so I talk a lot about how all these neologisms, uh, Islamicate, Islamdom, Afro-Eurasian, or Eurasian, uh, ecumene, all these things are important to think about the way in which history has expanded since the 6th century and that what's happened with those parts of Afro-Asia that have become Muslim uh, is that there is obviously a perpetuation of loyalty to Islam and the development of Islam as religion, but there's also a larger cultural wing. I say larger because it includes religion but doesn't limit it to uh, a faith allegiance or even institutional uh, memory that's uh, defined by religion but instead includes a cultural art that goes into uh, different forms of science, different forms of art, different forms of music, and literary expression that, yes, are linked to religion, but not limited to the articulation or profession of a single faith uh, outlook. So I, I, I believe that, um, yes, one can't bifurcate, but it's really difficult to aggregate. Instead of bifurcating to aggregate, Concepts which in, in English, like religion and culture, are taken to be uh, con conflicting or at least competitive, and to combine them and say there's something that goes beyond the competition that is in the conflation or convergence of religion and culture, and that is the cosmopolitan spirit that Hodgson defines as Islamicate. Let's move to the next uh, key term of the title. In fact, you take on cosmopolitan and spirit separately, but let's try to combine the two. Um, if uh, you might allow that. Um, tell us a bit about, I mean, this is, of course, a category which is oftentimes uh, used in very different uh, contexts and ways. Uh, tell us a bit about how you employ uh, this category of the cosmopolitan spirit and how does it connect with this first category of the Islamicate? Why is it so important uh, to connect Islamicate with this idea of cosmopolitan spirit? Well, I, I appreciate the question, and if Islamicate is not well known, and if I'm trying to reintroduce it or re revitalize it for a larger audience uh, within the academy, but above all in the academy and Islamic studies, and we can talk about that more later, the term cosmopolitan has almost been too well known. Uh, it's something that has been thought about uh, in endless uh, conversations, and even in 
going back to the work that I did in 2006 and the book Rethinking Islamic Studies in 2010 um, that my, my two colleagues, Carl Ernst and Richard Martin, published and also a wonderful essay in there from uh, my other former colleague, Ibrahim Musa, that all those works, instead of talking about it, uh, Islamic studies from Orientalism to post-structuralism or post-modernism or post-anythingism, I really thought that the more important thing was to think about Islamic studies in a cosmopolitan vein. And what is cosmopolitan about Islam and uh, is is not merely uh, the religion and the and the various episodes uh, and and dimensions of Islamic identity that one could talk about and should talk about in thinking about uh, the larger history of Islam, but there's also something cosmopolitan that includes religion along with cultural influences and cultural uh, elements that are not strictly speaking secular but also can't be defined only by religion. So for me, cosmopolitan is a, an important concept because it allows one to think more broadly about what is Islamic and what is Muslim in a, in a idiom uh, with a political uh, twist to it because cosmopolitan means going beyond uh, nationalist or regional um, definitions of East or West or North or South or uh, America versus the rest, which is something that too many people take seriously. And cosmopolitan implies, as, and I think this is, it goes to my point of using it as, as a, a um, manifesto rather than a, a long, long uh, and de detailed gauge history, is to say that cosmopolitan is what Riverbend described as having enough faith in your own conviction and your own background that you can accept the faith in the background of others. And so this is not a, a deeply historical take. Riverbend is, is just a blog name of somebody who was really talking about the Iraq war and its aftermath. But I think Riverbend Shibboleth is that, that civilization is really having enough security in your own faith and culture to allow people the sanctity of theirs. It combines, sanctity is a word usually used for religion. So to, in Riverbend, it's combining one's own outlook and one's own deepest loyalties with an appreciation for other people and the sanctity. I, I think that term is very important, the sanctity, that is the separateness and, and the um, esteem of their own culture background. So for me, cosmopolitan means not my way or the highway. And it doesn't mean having something that uh, is sometimes talked about as uh, a nice way of having tea and, and associating with people with lots of money and can travel anywhere. Cosmopolitan is not just something that is used as a, a way of, of proclaiming you're better than other people, but cosmopolitan is really a, a, a deeper, more important way of identifying with all parts of the world and with accepting the faith and the culture of others and not simply doing what um, I think I quoted somebody from the New York Times said is an order of meritocracy where you, uh, you typically call yourself a global citizen because you have enough wealth to travel and do things that other people can't do. So I'm trying to broaden not only Islam and Muslim to think about it in another idiom that's called Islamicate, but also saying that cosmopolitan, and above all the cosmopolitan spirit, is something that animates Islam. And just to refer to Shahab Ahmed again one more time, when he has a dedication of his book, he talks about his parents as those who taught him the cosmopolitan of Islam and the Islam of their cosmopolitanism. 
And what's ironic in his book, it's a wonderful book and it's wonderful many insights that I could talk about um, as readily as I could talk about my own uh, recent uh, manifesto, but he never really defines what's cosmopolitan. And so for me, cosmopolitan is exactly the key word to have side by side in conjuncture and in, in development and explication of what is meant by Islamicate and both both terms, Islamicate and cosmopolitan, anticipate the third term which I use, which is spirit. And do you want to explicate a bit about where you take the word spirit? Sure. Um, spirit, uh, I have to say, is something that came to me late. Uh, if I thought a lot about Islamicate, which I clearly have, and I, and I became introduced to cosmopolitan going back at least to, uh, 15, 20 years ago, the whole emphasis on spirit really came from my engagement with um, M.F. Hussein and with trying to think through what made his art so extraordinary and why, for those people who don't know him, um, somebody who was a scholar identified with India as a Muslim uh, who had radically modern or modernist views and eventually had to go in exile because he, he, he confronted and affronted uh, some of the uh, more extreme uh, Hindu or Hindutva uh, citizens and then later uh, rulers of India in trying to come to terms with and appreciate not only the art but the intellectual scope of M.F. Hussein, I realized that what really dis described him was something which I call fuzzy logic. And I was invited to to write an essay on M.F. Hussein for a, a volume on fuzzy logic and realized it was exactly this idea of logic, fuzzy logic or Barzakh logic that defined him. And it's, again, going back to what I think is the crucial element of Islamicate and the core of cosmopolitan identity is not to deny twos, but not to, be, not to view twos as always confrontational, but also sometimes agonistic rather than antagonistic, as connecting rather than opposing each other. So I think of Barzakh, um, you know what it is, but many people who are listening or thinking about it may not know. Barzakh is a term which, surprising to many people, is a Persian word found in the Quran. So nobody has ever argued that it's an Arabic word, but it has an Arabic association because it's in the Arabic Quran. But Barzakh is a term which almost embodies in itself the double nature of Islam, Muslim, Islamicate. It refers to in the Quran to both this world and the next world, but also refers to divide between salt and fresh water. And I've often talked with biologists about this and said, you know, how do you think about this difference? And they said, we've never explained it, but there are, there are different places in, in the world where salt and fresh water combine, but there's a space between them, which is neither salt nor fresh, but allows each of them to be in conversation or connection to each other. So this is actually mentioned in the Quran and I take this to be a wonderful metaphor with a scientific basis, so it's not just something that's uh, another kind of um, uh, imaginative idea without a, a historical or empirical grounding. So there actually is something that is observable as a binary dualism that is not, however, a strict dualism, but a dyad, so it's, it's both and rather than either or, or neither or. So uh, I think this is the way of thinking about um, spirit is a spirit is something which allows one to think through contrasts and without seeing them as contradictories to see the ways in which they merge with each other in the way in which Persian and Arabic became Perso-Arabic and Irano 
and Semitic became an element of what developed as Islamic age civilization. So for me, spirit is the animation. Some, some people said to me, why didn't you use the word ethos? I could have used the word ethos because ethos refers to the ethical dimension of spirit, which is crucial to it, and I argue that in my book. But I think spirit is a larger animating concept, and it's also something which is not fixed by a single denotation as being ethics or politics or society or literature. Spirit is something which animates without itself being fully um, located or limited to one place or one analytical metaphor. Now, you provide several examples in one of the chapters uh, of the book of the figures in both pre-modern and modern, as well as contemporary figures, including MFSN, who you already have talked about, as figures who really exemplify um, uh, this uh, ICS, the Islamic cosmopolitan spirit. Uh, we won't have the time uh, to talk about each and every of the fascinating figures and their sort of intellectual strivings that you detail in the book. But perhaps if I could ask you to maybe choose a couple from the various figures you outline and uh, share with our listeners a bit why you find those two figures to really exemplify the central category that is the subject of the book. You know, I, I, I really appreciate your questions. And I must say, when you told me in advance that you were going to be asking me certain questions, and this was one of them, uh, I said to my wife, uh, to Miriam Cook, I said, you know, all these questions are good and all of them have several answers, but this is probably the toughest. So, so I'm, I'm going to admit that when I looked at all your questions and I thought, what, which are the ones that I'm going to really have to hesitate, I hope not stumble, but at least um, linger and look and listen for a minute before I think about what I can say. So I actually reread the monograph to see what else I could say about two different figures. And I found myself going back and forth saying, if I pick these two, I haven't done these. If I think about these, what about these others? So I must say this was the most challenging of all your questions because I found it, frankly, very hard to limit myself to two because each one of the ones, that, which, what your question forced me to do was to say, why had I picked certain people? and Why do I think certain people are really important? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something which is because, you're, because you were kind enough to give me these questions in advance and I was able to think about it. I really thought long and hard and said, there's a certain sense in which I really can't answer the question adequately, so how can I answer it even with some attention to the uh, subtlety that you're, that you're uh, requesting? And so I, I think really the two people who I'm going to mention are as opposite as, and probably it's the only book that anybody will read where the two of them are in the same uh, cluster of pages between the, the cover and the, the front cover and the back cover of a single book. So the first person is somebody that everybody has heard of or at least heard about, and that's Ibn Khaldun. So I don't think I could say there's two people and exclude Ibn Khaldun from one of the two. And there are several reasons for us. One is, I mentioned my own biography, but I didn't say that when I was a graduate student, which I was <clears throat> decades ago now, not just years ago, but decades ago, I studied with um, somebody who is known as an Orientalist, but often described as an enlightened or at least uh, Orientalist light scholar, and that was Franz Rosenthal. And Franz Rosenthal is best known for his translation of the Muqaddimah of Ibn Khaldun. And he required those of us who were his grad students 
um, when I was there back in the late 60s, to read almost all of Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah, which he was then in the process of translating and finishing his translation for uh, Princeton University Press. So I was really taken with Ibn Khaldun, but I was also aware that this, this was such an arcane Arabic that nobody would ever read it, nobody would ever take it seriously beyond graduate school. So I kind of parked Ibn Khaldun upstairs. I thought of him as interesting. And then, of course, once I rediscovered Hodgson, I'd heard of Hodgson, but never read him until after I came back from Oligar in 1976. His book had been published in 74, and I didn't read it until two years later. I found him describing Ibn Khaldun as the forerunner and the foremost figure in Islamic aid civilization. So there I found it. The, you know, Ibn Khaldun was linked not only to Hashin, but as a forerunner and the foremost person who f- had formulated Islamic aid civilization. So I went back and reread Ibn Khaldun and many years later found myself, in fact, in the past decade, teaching at an institute in Istanbul that's called uh, the Alliance for Civilizations, but it's located within a larger university called Ibn Khaldun University. So Ibn Khaldun has been there from my graduate school days till my retirement from Duke and my continued teaching in Istanbul as a liminal and formidable figure, a liminal uh, insight and a formidable scholar. So I cannot talk about Islamic aid, cosmopolitan spirit and talk about an exemplar without Ibn Khaldun. But I have to quickly add that civilization itself has become a debated term. I went to Yale Law School back in the fall of 2018 for uh, a conference honoring Hodgson on the on the 50th anniversary of his death. He died in 68, and this conference was in 2018, so it was ex- exactly 50 years after his demise. And several people there had different takes on Hodgson, and not all of them agreed with him, and some of them openly attacked him. But one of the things that was really most interesting was that some people said, oh, you can't fault Hodgson because he was a child of the 60s, and he thought civilization was important, but now we know that civilization is just another Western category. So there is there is a strong element, and these some very fine historians, I'm not going to mention any by name, who think of civilization as something outdated, as something prejudicial, as something that reflects in, in Ever Said's terms, an Orientalist bias, and that civilization itself has to be bypassed if one is to think about, it in an accurate way, a history of the Muslim world. So, for instance, there's a there is a um, edited work from OUP, Oxford University Press, which I don't discuss in my monograph because it would have taken me even further afield. But it's by a, um, a sociologist named Lutfi Sunar called Debates on Civilization in the Muslim World. And what it shows, in effect, is that there is no real connection um, between the social science of the 19th and 20th and now the 21st centuries and any real understanding of the deep roots of the Muslim past or what could be called Islamicate uh, civilization. So the idea of civilization itself is, is dismissed as something that is only Western. Now, when I read and reread and teach as I have taught Ibn Khaldun for years now, the whole idea, he does have a binary. Of course he has a binary between uh, Umrah Madawi and Umrah Hadari. So there are two different Umrans. But Umrah itself is a category which is only translated as civilization. There's no other, I've looked in every, every, even in other terms where they try to translate it, they say Umran finally comes back down to civilization. 
this is not original. To put it in different terms, Hodgson may have rediscovered, but he wasn't the first to rediscover Ibn Khaldun. Toynbee had already th- thought that Ibn Khaldun's Bukhadimah was a giant work. But just because Western scholars who are interested in civilization theory rediscovered and deployed Ibn Khaldun in their own ways does not mean that his notion of civilization is itself outdated. Afrida Latas, who teaches at NUS and who's written extensively about Ibn Khaldun, notes that his idea of Umran can only loosely be translated as civilization because it really is an encompassing category of social order. So if you wanted to think about it, it's two notions of social order. One of that's is Hadadi, which is civilized, if you will, or urban, and the other which is um, Bedouin or uh, rustic or rural or outside, but it's not barbaric. The term barbaric and savage, which get introduced and compared with civilization, only comes in Western culture. So I think, to, to go back to my to your question, Ibn Khaldun has to be held up, as he is in my book, as one of the exemplars of not just Islamic cosmopolitan spirit, but a notion of civilization that transcends a Western-Eastern binary where if the West uses or misuses or tries to think of civilization as only Western or Western civilization as the dominant force in global history, that has to be challenged, but not at the risk and not at the cost of eliminating Ibn Khaldun as the forefather. He's a forefather of many things, but he is above all the forefather of civilization studies. So he has to be there, and he is there as one of my top two. And my other one is the opposite end, and it's going to surprise you and probably surprise most listeners as somebody that they've never heard of, and they can only read about secondarily because... Um, he left this world very young. He left this world as somebody who was uh, assassinated in February 2013 at the age of 36, and his name is Albert Husson. And Albert Husson is a Mindanaoan, a uh, larger Filipino Muslim, whom I got to know when I was doing research in the southern Philippines in Mindanao uh, over 10 years ago. And he helped me to understand many ways in which there is a genuine cosmopolitan that's a local Cosmopolitan, not something that you can put into words, but something that is rooted in the experience and the culture of people in what I call loosely Islam Nusantara, that Islam that's out in the in the larger reaches of the Indian Ocean. And a good part of my book, and I think probably the part that um, will endure after people have criticized me as they've criticized Hajjan and others for use of the term Islamicate, is that there is a, a, a Persianate domain, a domain of Persian influence, which is not limited to the Persian language or even Persian culture, but rather to the diffusion of a kind of local idiom of cosmopolitan identity. And that local idiom can be in, in Persian, but it can also be in Urdu, it can be in Hasa uh, Indonesia or Malay in Asa, or it can be in one of the several languages of, of the southern Philippines. So in a sense, if one's talking about uh, a kind of local cosmopolitan ethic, that the Persianate idiom which I try to express and to develop in the latter part of this manifesto is really summarized in this person, Albert Husson. And the reason I mention him, and he's not somebody who's got a great book, as Ibn Khaldun has a great book identified with him, or a great uh, range of art associated with him, which M.F. Hussein does, nor is he somebody like uh, some of the women whom I mentioned this, who are are well-known in their own right, even when they're attacked, they're well-known for the, for the art that they've represented and the, and the scholarship that stands behind that art. This fellow never wrote anything that is that you could get this published. You can never find out much about him. 
But he, through his, his friend who introduced me to him, Joel Kennedy, who's now uh, a scholar in his own right teaching uh, in Manila, because I was able to find out so much about the local rooted cosmopolitan, what I call the rooted cosmopolitanism of, of, of southern Philippines through him, I would rank him as one of the two great Islamic cosmopolitan spirits whom I have been privileged to know and whom I would put next to Ibn Khaldun as the two most important people in my book. Perfect. My next question actually comes uh, from this category that you've already talked about just now, which is another major category of this book, especially its latter half, uh, which is the idea of the Persianate. And you often also talk in this book about this category that other scholars have also mentioned, uh, the Persianate cosmopolis. So, uh, again, um, uh, you know, this is the kind of book that I think is best analyzed by um, uh, dissecting and really spending some time with the key categories that uh, that populate it. Uh, so, again, why is this category, the Persianate, uh, central uh, to your manifesto? And I also want you to perhaps take a step back from this particular book and uh, share some reflections with us about why this category has been so central in terms of shaping the trajectory of your own scholarship. Uh, you mentioned you began primarily with Arabic and Sanskrit and did your work on Asharistan, etc. But of course, as your career progressed, the Persianate became perhaps the major uh, 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 category of analysis or the sort of uh, your research arc. So perhaps a two-part question. Why is it central to the manifesto and how did it uh, end up taking such a major place uh, in your own research? Well, I could say that one of the things that uh, was most challenging and also most beneficial for me in my life was to um, get tenure so early that I realized once I was tenured that now that I had a job for life, I had to learn what to teach. So my own very short biography is that when I began, as I said, I thought that the only two languages I needed to know in order to have a productive scholarly life were Sanskrit and Arabic. And those are the two languages in which I focused and focused intensely during my four years as a grad student at Yale. But what I, what I discovered after I was lucky enough to get tenure at an early age, at an early stage in my career, um, I was uh, able to apply for and, and to get a scholarship to go to India and to go to Aligarh Muslim University, where I was associated, as was Hodgson, with the history department. He was there in 1551, and I was there in 64 to 66. And what I discovered during the time that I was in Aligarh was not only is there a vibrant intellectual community of Muslims in South Asia, but also that the language which was used in pre-modern times and which animated a lot of scholarship um, was Persian. And so for the two years that I was in India, I was able to be tutored by Varis Kirmani, who was in the Persian department of the AMU or Aligarh Muslim University. And I was also uh, able to learn uh, enough Urdu to pass in the Dorpur market and other places in, in, in South Asia where Urdu was spoken. But I really be- developed a deep appreciation for Persian and above all for Persian poetry and Persian key terms. So it was really the experience of post-tenure um, recognition that I had only begun to learn and not learned enough to know what I wanted to teach and what I, how I wanted to explore topics as a scholar. So Persian became a language which um, I used a lot when I was in uh, Aligarh and I've used a lot in my scholarship since. When some people ask me what are my 
serious books, I say, well, I can mention several, and you yourself have talked about Defenders of God, and now people can talk about this as another kind of, um, or Who is Allah, as, as serious books that are both a manifesto and also a larger analytical survey. But I would say my happiest book is probably the translation I did of the Malfazat uh, of uh, Sheikh Nizamati Olia called Fuad of Fuad, which I categorized and translated as Morals for the Heart. So ever since diving deeply into thinking about the Persian language, Persian literature, Indo-Persian Sufism, as I did during the two years in Aligarh, and I've done in several trips and several uh, activities since then, um, I've recognized that Persian is not only the equivalent of Arabic, but really in terms of Islamic age civilization, it's equal. Uh, it's not only equivalent in terms of having but it's equal in terms of the, of the, of the influence it's had in the larger world of Islamic age civilization. So I think when someone asked me, you know, what is the most important, one of the people who read this book asked me, what is the most important chapter? I said, well, the one that, that, um, probably is the most definitive is the one that's number five, Persian eight culture across the Indian Ocean, where I explain how the two terms that Hashtag originates, Islamic aid and Persian aid are in tandem, but that if one had to choose one in terms of cultural impact, one would say that Persian aid is the greater because it has a sense of going as a expression of cultural norms that imply Islam but exceed Islam in terms of their relatedness to large cultures that are under Muslim rule. So Persian and the Persian cosmopolis, uh, Dick Eaton talks about uh, the reference um, to his uh, longstanding uh, discussion of uh, the notion of Sheldon Pollock's uh, Sanskrit cosmopolis. Dick Eaton counterposes a Persian cosmopolis and Dick is a good friend for those of the listeners who don't know him. I would say that, you know, his book, uh, India and the Persian Eight Age, is a wonderful insight into how Persian and Persian language, but also Persian norms of, and special Persian norms of conduct are important in, in thinking about South Asia from 1000 to 1750. My only qualm with Dick was that he never mentions Hodgson and never mentions that the Persian Eight is intertwined with Islamic Eight. So my... My own take is that Persian and per- Persianate and Islamicate are separate, but that one really can't understand the longer impact, the longer range impact and influence of Persianate without seeing that it's also linked to and resonant as a form of uh, an expression of an Islamicate spirit or an Islamicate ethos. So uh, in terms of how I use it in this book, I, I try in chapter five on where I talk about Persianate culture beyond the Nile Doctus and beyond the early spheres that Hodgson describes. When I talk about it across the Indian Ocean, which is something he dealt with, but only partially, and many feel he dealt with it inadequately, to which I would say, yes, I agree, he did only deal partially with uh, Southeast Asia and not nearly enough with the oceans and the ocean connect element of, of, the, of the Indian Ocean. But still, there is the, there is the possibility, there is the the element of um, a craft in, in the making of, of an embryo, if you will, in how he talks about the Indian Ocean as a Persian age zone. So for me, uh, the word that symbolizes this, because everybody needs to have one word, the one word is adab. And I use adab repeatedly in the book, knowing that there are certain people who don't know any Arabic or any Persian who will say, that's just another way of ducking responsibility. So to show that I am 
I've read other people who've thought about this. I, I quote uh, our, our common resource, Armando Salvatore, who describes Adab as rules of courtly behavior inspired by a sense of what is proper and beautiful. So I think that this term of what is proper and beautiful is a wonderful way of saying, a very apt way of suggesting that Adab is not just about doing something well, it's doing something that's beautiful. And so the word Ihsan, which is often linked to Adab, correctly so, means that one, in one sense, both what is good and what is beautiful, and the two are inseparable. So when I think about Persian and think about how it has um, helped me and I hope helped others think about what is Islam and what is the larger range of Islamdom, or as you've also noted, Islamdom, which also can be Islamicate civilization, that the terms uh, barzakh, which means another, another Persian word, which means two things that are conjoined, but not, neither one eliminates or even uh, attempts to eradicate or reduce the other, two conjoined equivalents, and then also to think about adab as the way in which that's best expressed. Towards the end of the book, um, you do a very fascinating analysis where you, in some ways, analyze the place of the Islamic hit today in the Western Academy, especially, but not just Western Academy, I would say the broader Euro-American and, I, I guess, uh, Muslim academies around the world as well, in terms of the place of the Islamic hit, how is the Islamic hit is faring in some ways in terms of its uh, valences and the different uses that it's been uh, put uh, towards. So uh, uh, tell our listeners a bit about of how you evaluate where the Islamicate lies today or this broader category of the Islamicate cosmopolitan spirit in terms of uh, the kinds of scholarship which are being produced, um, the kinds of um, forum uh, forums that are happening. Um, um, so tell us a bit about what is your take on the place of the Islamicate and its uh, efficacy in um, Euro-American and more broadly um, um, the global academy. Well, it's, 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 it's a wonderful question, and it's a question that uh, I've I pondered repeatedly. And what I say in the end of the book, which is something that only really came to me after I had had my time at Exeter and also, had, first of all, had the experience, um, which was a wonderful experience of uh, uh, the uh, Hodgson celebration at Yale Law School, where uh, several people including Carol Hillebron, uh, gave papers about the nature of, of and Carol was there with her husband, and many people know Robert Hillebron is also a major Islamic art historian. And, and um, both, both Carol and Robert and, and also other people at that Yale Law School conference said that they appreciated, you know, Hodgins' influence, and they were there, of course, in a conference to honor uh, the by. The 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 fifty year marking of of his of his death, but they also said you know that it's really hard to apply his categories to art, and the more I thought about their their challenge, and then I then somebody pointed out to me that there was this book by uh, Stanford Shaw's daughter Wendy uh, Shaw, who herself is an Islamic or Islamicate art historian, but the title of her book is What Is Islamic Art? But Islamic is put in sanitary paps, and so my argument, and this is my my principal, uh, dis- my, my principal hope, if I could say, what is my what I wanted to achieve with this monograph and with the, and, and with this manifesto, is to get people to think, rethink art 
and humanities more generally, but but I don't I, I, because I myself am a visual person. I don't think you can dismiss art and say, well, it's just something different. It's for people who like to draw, and think about others who draw or paint or sculpture. I think art is central to any definition of culture and any history of civilization. So for Hodgson to have a lasting impact, there has to be an Islamicate art history. And what happens in this wonderful book, and I, I can't say enough good things about most of the elements of this book by Wendy Shaw called What is Islamic Art? The, the difficulty with it is that at the very outset, she says there ought to be a term that's better than Islamic, and there should be a term in Western art which would probably be Christianate. But she says Christianate is something which underscores the European Christianity as a culture permeated secular Western societies as a measure for assimilation, assimilation of those designated as other. Well, I think the same thing can be said of, of Islamicate, that Islamicate art is something where Islam as a faith and as a tradition and as a juridical as well as a philosophical and social norm was upheld. But there is an extra, there is what I call an additive uh, supplement to it. And that supplement is something that Hodgson tries to capture in Islamicate. So if one wants another label, and um, our, our common resource, Armando Salvatore, keeps saying there will be better labels ahead, but nobody has found a better label. So until one gets a better label than Islamicate, one has to talk about a, diff, a, a broad spectrum of Islamicate influence, which I would call Islamicate cosmopolitan spirit, but specifically in the academy, something that's called Islamicate art. So I think that the crucial notion is that many more people in the academy, but it's beginning with, and especially those in art history, and I mentioned several people who are both pro and anti using uh, the term Islamicate to refer to uh, history in the, in, the, in the larger Muslim world, art history in the larger Muslim world. But I feel that it's really important that um, all branches of the academy, but especially those in the humanities, um, philosophy I mentioned is one where it seems to be taking hold certain parts of history is taking hold but in my argument, in my own sense of history if one does not include finally art history uh, the, the effort to, to deeper what, uh, what uh, Niall Green whom I haven't mentioned but who volume I like he wants to deprovincialize the Persianate world if it wants to deprovincialize the Islamicate world one needs to kind of look at broader categories, and I think Islamicate art is one of them. So as we're coming towards the end of our uh, time, Dr. Lawrence, uh, uh, could you share with our listeners a bit about what uh, keeps you occupied these days in terms of uh, what you're working on um, and what we might be talking about next January? Well, next January, uh, boy, I would, like, I would like to think that I'd be talking about two books. I've been working on two books almost as long as I've been working on these, but I've been working on them with co-authors and with multiple contributors. Well, not with multiple contributors. The one, the one that I've been working on, <laughs> Riley Blackwell. If there could be a trilogy for Riley Blackwell, of course, um, the, 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 the one that, that, uh, is, that, that you were a part of would be one part on the, is, is the uh, Amanda Salvatore did with, with uh, two other uh, editors with uh, Roberto Totoli and Babak Rahimi. So there's the Wadi Blackwell History of Islam, and now there's this Wadi Blackwell uh, manifesto of mine on Islamicate cosmopolitan spirit. But I hope there will be, and I should say this is a very large, inshallah, by next year this time, 
It should be the Wiley Blackwell Companion of Islamic Spirituality, which I've been working on since 2011, for over 10 years now, with my colleague Vincent Cornell. And it's not his problem or his fault, but there have been several difficulties. The 28 chapters, and I'm sure if I were to sit down and have a workshop with Salvatore and his co-editors, they would say, well, you can't believe how tough it was to get this chapter or how we had to wrestle with this part of it. And so we have just had difficulty. I, I don't mind mentioning one difficulty, which everybody would understand, is one of the people who contributed to this, contributed as a scholar, and now he's become a politician again. And that's Ali Alawi, who is now the vice premier of, of Iraq in charge and the, and the minister of finance. So when he contributed his initial article to us, he was just a, a mere scholar at the National University of Singapore. So we have the difficulty of not only making sure that his article is still up to date in terms of what it says, but getting hold of somebody who is busy with things other than academic exercises or articles or publications is part of his life. So I'm hopeful that we can wrestle with the dilemma and the difficulty of Ali Alawi in our volume, but also get the whole thing finished and then published from Wadi Blackwell by next year. And then if that happens, you'll have to have a discussion with both me and with Professor Cornell. But that would be my hope is that if we can't do it in January, we can do it in February, but we could do it in spring of 2023. Islamicate Cosmopolitan Spirit by Professor Bruce Lawrence, published by Wiley Blackwell as part of their Wiley Blackwell Manifestos series. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Lawrence. This was just a, such a great treat uh, to uh, hear you uh, talk about this book, and I'm sure this book will create some fan- fascinating discussion. Well, I think the treat is mine for, for your having done this and having... You're very kind. Thank you so much, Dr. Lawrence, for your time. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Bruce Lawrence about his wonderful new book, Islamicate, Cosmopolitan Spirit. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I also hope you will join us again for another fresh episode of NBIS. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.